Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined, as always, by my childhood friend, Chris Dow. Dr. Pawpaw's original balm. And my adulthood friend, Minty Boo. Hang on, I'm going to sneeze. And we are discussing our all-time top 100 favourite video games. Announcement! Announcement! Before we begin, it's time for your weekly reminder about our different homes across the inter-world. Facebook.com slash Our3Cents is where we live, and it's a great place to come and chat to us and ask us questions you'd like us to answer on a future episode, or tell us your top 10 favourite video games of all time to feature on a future episode of the show. We also have more visual homes in the form of Instagram, Twitch and TikTok, where we reside at O3C Podcast. And lastly, our summer home is on YouTube, but uh, we like to be a bit off the grid when we summer, so we don't have a direct address, but if you ask the nice search butlers at YouTube for our three cents, you'll probably be able to hunt us down and see our amazing video content. So, this week, we have my 10th favourite video game. I'm, I'm so excited. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've actually spoken about a game on my list. So, uh, That's true. Yeah, this You've had to what? wait. You've had to be patient. But before we do that, it's time to return to the quiz where, once again, one point separates you both. Okay. Quiz! So, here we go. The Commodore Amiga 500 was released in which year? 86. No, it's later than that. Oh, okay. 1990. Well, I'm going to give the point to who got closest. The correct answer is 1987. Oh, fuck off. And the point goes to Minzy. I'm sure it was later than that. (laughs) Yeah. That is 46. Oh, Oh. well done, Minty. Oh, nail biting. I hate it when he gets close. Hate it. Yeah. Well done, Minty. 46 all. Imagine this was a penalty shootout and we were 92 (laughs) goals deep. (laughs) So before we dive into chatting about what games we've played this week, it is time for another listener question. This week coming from Patreon subscriber CJ Anderson, all the way from Australia. And he asks, what is the most amount of time you've put into a game before realising it was bad? And this is a great question. Yeah. And I was tempted to say Mario Kart 64. Jonathan. <laughs> Partly because I know it winds Chris up. But also, I think a lot of people just went along with it because no. everybody else is playing it. No, and then if you actually game. look at the game, it's not a great game, is it? It's, it's an, a it's good no, game. I, okay. It's not a bad game. It's nowhere game. near as good as the amount of people who played it would denote. Oh, this, this can be a listener question for another day. <laughs> <laughs> But my first thought, actually, was Grand Theft Auto on the Game Boy, oh, which uh, God. It, it just about resembled the original, enough for me to convince myself it was a decent port. But, but the game was so glitchy, you could barely complete a handful of missions before the game would crash every time. So I didn't really risk playing it too much. Plus, it was it was really crap. There was about two cars in the whole city. <laughs> uh, it was so desolate. <laughs> it was, yeah, it's quite upsetting. Carmageddon on the Game Boy Color, oh, on the other hand. God. <laughs> I put so much time into this game. Uh, I think I might have even completed it. I, oh. I know I certainly unlocked the, uh, the jumbo jet you could play as, which did not work very well, obviously, because nothing in the game did. It was, again, it was so glitchy. Like, you could, obviously, being Carmageddon, you could run people over, but it would so often not work and you would just catch somebody on your car wheels and just drive around with them, stuck to your wheels, just looping their walking animation as you drove around. (laughs) And like you would catch on corners of everything, which in a racing game is obviously a real issue. You would constantly be driving over different textures that you weren't meant to. I mean, all of the tracks used the same art assets as well, so it never felt any different from like course to course either. It's just, just a total mess of a game. But Somehow, I managed to convince myself that I was having fun playing it. And I think this was this was in part due to the fact that I hadn't seen a review of it. So I just went along with it. 
I love the PC game, although I never had the full game. I just had the demo of Carmageddon 2, Carpocalypse Now. It's a good game. Yeah, it was really, really good fun. And, and like a lot of demos I had on the PC, I got endless fun out of just one level of that game. Enjoyable, good racing action, conveniently floaty physics to enjoy the almost like 3D platforming style of the racetracks. Loads of silly blood and gore. So when I heard a port for the, for the Game Boy Color was coming out, I just put it on my Christmas list and whiled away the days until Jesus came down the chimney. <laughs> <laughs> and I played it all Christmas. The game also had aggressively unpleasant music, which, which actually didn't trouble me because... I'd also got for Christmas that year the Abermania cover album featuring such classic variations as Money, 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 performed by Madness, Martine <sighs> McCutcheon's moving rendition of Mamma Mia, and of course, <laughs> the, the classic Thank Abba for the Music, performed by Steps, Bewitched, Denise Van Outen and Billy Piper. And I mean this wholeheartedly. That fucking abysmal album was leagues better than the musical holocaust <laughs> that was the Carmageddon soundtrack. That that combination of that album and that game is is like hell. Yeah. That's like a proper Room 101 for someone in, in like yeah. the, the full 1984 version of that you know, thing. <laughs> yeah. Just stuck there for eternity playing those two pieces of media. Absolutely. I did actually, I did look up some reviews of, of the game uh, just before putting this together and... Brilliantly, like so, I saw the uh, IGN's I rate three out of ten review, and the the first point of contention was its lack of multiplayer, which obviously in a racing game is a bit of an oversight. But this review opens just with the simple statement: it doesn't use the game link. Carmageddon on the Game Boy Color does not use the game link cable feature. <laughs> As if that's the main problem, though, of that game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously it was an issue for the... I mean, not not a problem for me, obviously, because I've never known anyone else who foolishly bought a copy of the game. So, uh, you know, in a way, I'm, I'm glad to have taken that one for the team. But how about you guys? Uh, Minty, what was the most amount of time you've plugged into a game before coming to the conclusion that it was not very good? This has been a hard one to think about because I so rarely buy games that... If ever I do, I I need to know that it's actually going to be good and I'm going to enjoy it. So for my sins, I am a little swayed by such things as reviews, uh, my peers, many, many, many factors. But there's, there was one game that I was so excited about and so hyped for that I, I bought it irrespective of what anybody had said. I, I've talked about this game quite a, quite a bit in the past, so I'm, I'm loath to talk about it again. But it is Paper Mario Sticker Star. <laughs> Thinking about... The legacy of of the Mario story series and, and the powerhouse games that came before it. To have oh, a really anemic and shitty version, even though it was it was on the 3DS, so I guess the portability was nice. That was the only thing it really had going for it. It was just awful. <laughs> Did you convince yourself that it was good for quite some time before going? Oh, I was about 15 hours in before I was like, I'm not actually enjoying this and it's not good. <laughs> I was like, I need to be charitable with it because it's a 3DS game. It's, you know, the 3DS doesn't have the capabilities of the home consoles that came before it. So obviously it's going to be a little bit pared down, but you know, it was, it was just, it was just a bone of a game. There's no meat <laughs> to it at all. <laughs> How about you, Chris? What, uh, what have you plowed time into before going, oh... For this, I would like to nominate most of the DS launch window games. <laughs> yeah. Th these days, I play all sorts of toot. Like, I talk about it each week. I'm always playing rubbish. That is objectively not very good. But the difference between playing toot when I am 33 <laughs> and, you know, has, have a disposable income to when I was a kid and the funds I had for games were pretty, pretty limited is, is vast. Like, that's a, that's a very different way of living. And back when I got my DS, which I imported, inspired by a young Jonathan Dunn, I played nothing but Super Mario 64 DS and the Metroid Prime Hunters demo for several weeks, and that kept me pretty happy. Oh, yeah. Then when I did have a little bit more money saved up after, you know, splurging on the console itself, I picked up a handful of these launch window games, and almost all of them were dreadful. Yeah. <laughs> but this is where the memory fits in the question. I wasn't willing to acknowledge that they were bad because I had nothing <laughs> else to play. <laughs> So yeah. Ridge Racer DS was almost uncontrollable on, on, on the DS. Like Ridge Racer 64, which is what it's a port of, is a very good game. But on the DS, the D-pad controls were, were awful. The touchscreen controls were shit. 
the analog thumb thing that came with the original console that I, I really persevered with did nothing for this game. It did not help at all. Did nothing for anything. Yeah. And yeah, I played Ridge Racer 64 for hours and hours and hours, convinced that I was the problem. Like if anyone sort of picked it up when I was trying to show off the console and it was like, that doesn't, that doesn't control very well. I was like, no, well, if you just get a little bit better at it, like, no, no, that's not the case. It's just, it's fucking shocking. No, the problem lies with you. Shut up. <laughs> like it, it was, it was nice looking, but it was a really poorly playing game. Rayman DS again is a port of a good game. This time Rayman 2, you know, a very well, well received platform game but it was crushed down to fit into a form that just made it unplayable. Yeah. It didn't even have the looks of Ridge Racer to save it because at least Ridge Racer DS looked decent. Like in, in Rayman, the textures were disgusting. The character models were, were so low in polygons <laughs> that Rayman and Glowbox looked almost skeletal. The main thing about that is that as testament to the fact that it, it was not ready to be ported onto a handheld, yeah. it was also a launch title for the 3DS. It was, it was. Yeah, which was much better. The, the other thing that really <laughs> let that game down, aside from looking dreadful, again, was the controls. Like the, the D-pad did not work in, mm. in that 3D world the thumb attachment, which they tried to cater for, they obviously the games were made in parallel. It wasn't like they were sat in the offices of Nintendo when they were porting Mario sixty four, because the the thumbstick in Mario sixty four, I beat the whole game one hundred percent with that. I, I know no one liked it, but I did the entire game like that. <laughs> and with Rayman, it it just did not function. It, it did not work on the touchscreen. And as you say, all these kind of wrongs weren't righted until the the three D launch at, at the three DS. Um, yeah. you know Rayman 3D was was a decent port of that game finally the final one and this is one that has come up on the podcast before amazingly is Feel the Magic yeah yeah <laughs> which you know you mentioned it Jonathan when we did our Valentine's special in our first year it was actually the Easter special was it yeah because it was the Rub of Rabbit of course it was <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was crowbar, admittedly crowbarred <laughs> into either of them. But yeah, for, for anyone for anyone that didn't listen to that episode, it's a horrible minigame collection. It labours over the stuff the DS did as, you know, all the gimmicks, like blow into the microphone, twiddle something on the touchscreen. It just, it wasn't fun, but I beat it yeah. fully. I disliked almost all of my time with it. <laughs> but again, I just, I wouldn't accept that it was bad. It was like, well, it's it's unique. It's something different. I think it's worth a play because I didn't want to just play Mario 64 again. <laughs> Which, you know, I had to have yeah. something new. And the first decent game I think I got on the DS after that period was probably Zookeeper. Oh, yeah. Like it's it's a basic match three touchscreen puzzle game like Bejeweled, but one that I played for so long, it only narrowly missed out on my top 100. Aww. It's a game I really, really like for, you know, it might come up in the future if we ever kind of discuss the games that missed the cut. But prior to picking that up, everything was bad <laughs> and, and it was just you know I, prob- I probably poured 100 hours into those three stinking games yeah just resolutely refusing to make the call that they were bad <laughs> so yeah loads of time in that period when i was kind of you know late teens around the, the launch of the ds just dreadful games yeah i mean it, it's it's not uncommon to see developers not know how to develop games for nintendo systems hello were you exactly yeah <laughs> that was the, that was the wii u obviously unlike the wii u the ds did finally gain traction and the 3ds did as well when people kind of figured out actually how to use it properly but especially for the ds it was same with like wii launch titles and all the wii sort of budget titles is so many of them were just glorified tech demos dressed up as a full release when it wasn't even the switch you know you look at one two switch <laughs> Did you know for the Switch now, I own hundreds of physical games. I don't have a copy of 1-2 Switch. <laughs> That's a shame. That's a shame because yeah. that, that marble rolling game in it is brilliant. It's worth it's, the money. It's, it's actual magic. It's not. But it is, te- <laughs> it is technology that I don't understand. So potato, potato. Therefore magic. It should have been the Wii Sports. It should have been yeah. the Switch's yeah. Wii Sports. It should have been included. Yeah. I will say this and I will mean it. <laughs> they, they should have done a sequel to Nintendo Land. Nintendo Land was brilliant. That used the different Joy-Cons. Like, you, you've got detachable controllers. You've got a multiplayer experience out of the box. Yeah. Like, do something with that. Do something with the whole idea. Like, stick the touchscreen on the floor and then two different people are waving around the controllers to do something. It, they could have done loads. I think Nintendo Land 2 is one of the, the franchises that we really should have had something from yeah. by now. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's just a shame that it's so so tied to the idea of the Wii U that we probably never will. But it was it was a lovely game. It was very 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 fun. So what have we played this week, Chris? Why don't you kick us off? Tell us what you've played this week. It's been another odds and sods week for me. I'm still struggling to start anything of real consequence. 
So instead, I've been kind of just trawling through my my digital collections on Switch and Vita to try and find some quick throwaway titles that I can just play for five minutes here and there in between home working. For me, I've, I've never been a huge handheld player in the traditional like, oh, it's great to play the console on the bus sort of thing. But it's been lovely to use it as a handheld now. Like I've got my work laptop in front of me and then next to it, I can just have the Vita or the Switch to pick up. And, yeah. and that kind of is enough separation between the two that it's really helped kind of get into a, a working routine again when I'm when I'm stuck at home at my dining room table. On the Switch, I have beaten, and that's in inverted commas, two endless runner style games that I picked up literally for, for under 10 pence each in sales. <laughs> one was called Go Fish Go, and it was dreadful. <laughs> and one was called Jumping Joe and Friends, and that was okay i guess it was a five out of ten maybe (laughs) go fish go is about as bare bones as this sort of game can be you travel into the screen you move your fish into one of three lanes to avoid obstacles you collect coins to to unlock bits and pieces and buy stuff in the in-game store there were a handful of in-game achievements and basically when i ticked those off i just thought right that's that's fine i can delete this now but it was it was something that because i had to think not at all like it it was (laughs) as vapid as an experience can be it was something I could just glance over, do a quick run, get a high score, and then come back to what I was doing on my laptop. Jumping Joe was more fun. Like it's more like something like a doodle jump. You're going up a tower, um, but you use the shoulder buttons on either side to kind of either jump up and to the left or up and to the right. And it means that it gets quite fast paced. It's quite tactile. It's it's kind of much more enjoyable because you do feel there's kind of a, a sense of pressure and you you feel quite skillful when you do kind of then get a bit of a combo going. Again, it had some in-game unlockable stuff. Once they were all done, I sort of said, well, there's nothing else to achieve with this. So thanks a lot. That's finished. And then uninstalled that one. Between the two games, I probably passed like an afternoon. Like neither, neither were very long, but they were they were fine for what they were, I guess. On the Vita, I've been digging through some more of those games by the publisher Rattalaker that I mentioned quite a long time ago now. And I, I remember when I brought them up before, I was I was whinging that they often would port quite good stuff to the console but always devalue it by having like an insistence that there should be these really easy platinum trophies to unlock. And often like it doesn't even require you to beat the game. It's just like, oh, I've, I've done a few levels and apparently I've unlocked everything I need to unlock. But when you actually persevere, they, they clearly have good taste in the games they want to kind of license and then port to other platforms. So in the last few days, I've beaten a game called Read Remastered, one called Read 2 and one called Duck Souls Plus. All three are are quick stage-based sort of Punisher platformers in the vein of Super Meat Boy. They're all pretty good games. They've all got their own quirks and challenges. But again, it it just, it does annoy me that Reed Remastered, for instance, happily chucked out the Platinum Trophy when I was on like level 45 out of 50. It just seems weird that it's like, why not just put it back a few levels? Encourage people to actually get to the credits and feel like you've, you've had something out of the experience. So... Yeah, it's I, I can't be too mad at them because they essentially kept the Vita afloat the last couple of years. Yeah. I think they're basically one of the only publishers that is still producing stuff for the platform. But it does feel a shame that these games come out and then whether or not they're good or not, that's not why people are picking them up. And and I just feel bad for the developers who obviously are quite excited to be like, yeah, my game's on a proper platform. It's on a Sony handheld. Mm. And then, you know, people play it for five minutes and then just immediately delete it because they've got their magic trophy. So, yeah. I did beat them properly though. I, I will say that like as much as in the past, I know I've been the, the achievement hunting person on the, on the Xbox 360. I'm long past those days. So I, I did beat them <laughs> properly. And yeah, each one, it's only a couple hours long, those three games, they won't make you too mad, but they will sort of challenge your skills a bit. Just quite, quite a nice time. And that's about it. Nice. So as for me, I've played a few things. I've continued to do fairly regular runs on Hades, which is awesome. I have now played the first act of Kentucky Route Zero, which is absolutely brilliant, as promised by Chris's account of it. Brilliant writing, great atmosphere, and yeah, I'm really looking forward to playing some more of it. It it works very well playing it kind of in the middle of the night uh, when I'm slightly sleep deprived. Now I'm up with, uh, with Nora. I've also restarted playing Red Dead Redemption 2, which is, I know, a game I spoke rather disparagingly about when I first got it. I had similar gripes to when I played The Last of Us, which was the immense overuse of interactive elements that seemed totally needless just so they could have the player interact in the cinematic experience. And the opening few hours of Red Dead 2 are definitely like this, but I've got a bit more patience for it 
these days and also i've been told that once you're through like the intro the game really opens up massively and also a key fact is that the choices you make in the game actually have consequential outcome on the story so (laughs) i am looking forward to getting deeper into the game at the moment it is a fucking slog and i'm not enjoying it because it's so slow and it's like you don't need to make me just wade through the snow carrying somebody who's dying on my back just so i know that it's hard to be a cowboy <laughs> like <laughs> oh. that's the tagline on the box in small print it just says being a cowboy it's hard <laughs> exactly but the, the reason well the main reason why i picked it up again is that my usual sea of thieves crew have started playing red dead online together and it sounds like they're having a great time and i really want to get involved with that so i was like i picked it up in the sale you, you can just buy red dead online as a separate thing these days it was about five quid but i thought oh, for about 20 quid i may as well pay 20 quid to potentially get a fi- you know a 50 hour game <laughs> that i will i will revisit at some point but yeah i'll keep you updated with my progress on that but the main game i've spent time with this week is an indie game that's been on my list for quite some time of, of games to play and that is the retro styled action platform metroidvania game called the messenger oh now i remember seeing this marketed on the stylistic gimmick that it switches from 8 bit to 16 bit and it's a it's a fun thing to look at but the way it's used is 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 very very smart and uh, and it's it's not gimmicky at all it's not superficial the way it uses it is essentially the game has that as a visual shorthand for playing in two different time periods as like time travel is a key and you know fairly sort of frequent component in the game so it's it's a very very quick easy way of knowing if you're in the past or if you're in the future because you know the uh <laughs> the visuals have updated and that's it's, it's very very clever in terms of its gameplay, it's similar to classic Ninja Gaiden, but definitely benefits from, you know, like modern tech. It's got some nice RPG light elements to it where you can get extra abilities and develop them and stuff like that. It's got fantastic writing in it. Like, it's constantly very, very funny. And the deeper into the story I'm getting, the cleverer and cleverer it's getting as well. It's, it's, it's very, very good. Very good at sort of subverting conventions and all of that stuff. And it's also got the most outstanding chiptune soundtrack like it is possibly the best chiptune soundtrack i've ever heard literally the first few bars of the first track when you start a new game totally blew me away that i was sold on the game entirely (laughs) on that i was like yep i'm in don't care don't care what you know how good this is fortunately it is very very good (laughs) also the 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 chipset of the soundtrack advances when you shift between eras as well oh that's nice which is a really really nice touch it's very very good there's some very clever instances of this as well that i just really made me smile just for the sheer attention to detail it's uh it's brilliant you you can buy the soundtrack as this double album with like the past on one disc and the future on the second disc it's i'm yeah i'm coveting that (laughs) i'm I'm, I'm playing it on xbox game pass because it's on there at the moment but it is available on on everything and i you know i definitely recommend it it's very much in the same vein as things like shovel knight and owlboy even celeste so if you enjoyed any of them it's it's definitely worth checking out If, if nothing else have a listen to the track from the soundtrack called Ninja's Respite. It's it's just, it's awesome. It's so good. Very nice. Mm. The point where I'm at in the game now, it's really opened up into sort of proper Metroidvania. And that's obviously right up my street. So uh, I'm having a wonderful time. How about you, Minty? What have you plugged your treasured time into in these last seven days? One thing only this week. Ah. I took the plunge Ooh. and I'm... I'm about 30 levels into Grindstone. How how are you finding it? I don't want to get too excited just yet. Okay. Well, it's really great, isn't it? Yeah! We did it! We did it! No, it's it's really good fun. I, I don't know what it was when I played it on Apple Arcade that just didn't gel with me for some reason, I think. Maybe it was the fact that it just didn't grip me in like the first five minutes of playing when I was doing my uh, three months trial or whatever it was. So I was like, oh, I've got to play this one. Nope, don't do it. Uh, try this one again. Nope, 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 try this one. Nope, nope. So it didn't survive that rigorous process, but I, I'm, I'm glad I took the plunge, really, because it's, it's just really, really good fun. Are you playing it on the Switch? I am indeed, yes, yes. It's nice for a game that was originally a touchscreen game, 
using the pro controller there's no there's no real um not, nothing's lost no I, I really like it on the controller and it gains a lot from having rumble mm. oh yeah it's yeah lovely for me obviously i'm not that far into it just yet but i think for me it's a game that is summed up by the phrase oh fuck yeah <laughs> <laughs> like yeah there are some levels where I'm just like, oh, this is, you know, this is a bit of a, this is a bit of a slog. I'm not, not particularly uh, on board with it. But then, the little, the little creeps will just drop in just such a way that you can build up a chain of thirty oh. of them and stop it. Oh boy. Hooey. Oh, it's like those pimple popping videos. <laughs> it's just whew, incredible it's, stuff. It is that payoff, isn't it? It's like there's certain times, especially if you're. If you're trying to get everything on one stage, so you're trying to knock out the king, you're trying to unlock the treasure chest, it's like things are dropping down, more and more of the enemies become enraged, and, and you start running out of places to actually position yourself safely. Yeah. yeah. And then, like you say, Minty, it's like just something changes, or you're able to use an ability to just clear one space, and that's that's like the key to unlock everything. And then at that point, when you can just romp through the whole thing, that's those times I said before where it's like, I just want to throw the pad in the air and shout. <laughs> it's just such a satisfying game to play. Yeah, just want to whoop and holler and point a finger in the air. Finger guns till the cows come out. I think it'll be a good few months before I take on the daily grinds because mm. the past couple of days I've been doing them, they have these poison bits. And I think that's a little bit more, a little bit too advanced for me at the moment because I'm bad at them. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. Grindstone and a little bit more ring fit as well. I'm pleased with myself for keeping up with that. Yes, well done. Probably going to have a sesh after making dinner as well. Well done. That's really, really good. So, in the words of the walrus in Alice in Wonderland, the time has come! <laughs> Are you guys ready to hear what my 10th favourite video game of all time is? Lay it on us. Yes! Two weeks ago. Chris opened his thoughts on Sonic 3 and Knuckles by saying that it was a game that had appeared on my list twice. I did. Well, it's my turn this week to say that my 10th favourite game is a game that has appeared on Minty's list twice. Oh. And indeed, once on Chris's. Oh, <laughs> okay. Oh, wow. And it's interesting that you said that the games in our top 10 are like family, for the most recent and precious addition to my family is a little baby. And my game this week is Ed McMillan's cry em up roguelike, The Binding of Isaac. Brilliant. Yeah. So I, I definitely feel like you two have raised the bar with the glorious depths you've gone to to regale us with your particular relationships with your 10th favourite video games of all time. And in truth, I, I struggled to sort of put together my thoughts on The Binding of Isaac because it's... It's, it's quite difficult to really nail the crux of what makes the game so fun, at, at, like, to me, and what gave me cause to put, I mean, literally almost a thousand hours into it. Insane. But I thought a good place to begin with my time with this game was the beginning of my time with it. And I mentioned this when it appeared on Minty's list, that I'd seen Minty put hour upon hour into it every evening on our sofa when we lived together. I'd only seen him playing it, and, you know, I'd gathered information on the game through that, and what little Minty had mentioned of it. And I remember distinctly thinking, I don't see anything about this game that I would enjoy. And this essentially came down to my lack of understanding of the roguelike genre. And I, I couldn't get my head around why that would be appealing. Of course, to anyone who's listened to my thoughts on roguelikes over the last two years on this podcast, <laughs> it will surprise you that I wasn't initially sold on the concept. But I thought, who would want to play a game where you have to start all over again every time? where things aren't where you remember them, where it was a constant gamble between having fun and being dicked on by the developers. But much like the long nights of looking after my 10-week-old baby, the constant presence of this distraught infant in my periphery, I guess, slowly <laughs> gnawed away at me. In my time between seeing Binding of Isaac and properly playing it, my understanding of the game grew, but also my friendship with Minty did also. And by the time it landed on the eShop on the new 3DS, I failed to believe that something that was treasured so deeply by one of my dearest friends would not also have an impact on me. For the hundreds of hours that Minty had poured into it, I also couldn't argue with the £12-ish price point. You know, it would turn out that this would give me the equivalent value of about 3p an hour, given the time I would squeeze into the 3DS iteration. <laughs> so 
It's a purchase I can't say I begrudge making. <laughs> I was already familiar with Ed McMillan's work in the form of Super Meat Boy, and so I knew his flash-style aesthetics and his fondness for the crude and immature and his intense predilection for the expulsion of bodily fluids. <laughs> and Binding of Isaac doubled down on everything he'd done before in that sense. All of the enemies in Binding of Isaac are just the manifestation of a rebellious infant doodling in their school books. I mean, literally... Anything that could possibly be a poo or a wee or a bum or something that could be fed to something else or something that could be aborted. I mean, literally, in the first level, you're likely to come across an actual floating, coughing arsehole. Is it funny? Yes, but it is everywhere. But yeah, it's it's amazing how quickly you get desensitised to it because the design of the enemies and the bosses just become representative of their abilities and their patterns. And so you start to ignore the floating turds and pissing wounds that are attacking you and just see particular movement patterns and, and their respective radii of attacks and the, you know, the spots in each room you can move to do next to avoid taking damage and get your attacks in. Something that is quite fun to do is talk about the game to people who have never encountered it, because on its literal content alone, it sounds monumentally unappealing. I, mean, <laughs> I remember mentioning just, just the title of the game to one of my church-going friends, just, just in passing, just quite casually, and it said, sorry, there's a game of the Binding of Isaac. <laughs> this refers to a point in the Bible when Abraham took his son up to the top of the mountain to murder him, because God didn't say Simon says. <laughs> it's a Bible story that, upon reflection, probably should not be the basis for the founding of one of the three major monotheistic religions, but those people can make peace with their manipulative, infanticidal deity in their own way, and indeed in their own time. <laughs> it's not for me to judge. In case you've got this far into the podcast without hearing Minty talk about the game twice, Chris talk about it once, in addition to the times we've mentioned it in passing, or if you've never stumbled across it or a roguelike before, here's the York notes. The Binding of Isaac is a game played from a top-down perspective in the style of classic 2D Zelda games. You move from room to room, defeating the enemies in there until you get to the boss of the floor, and you keep descending through a variety of floors until you die or beat Mum or Satan or one of the other final bosses. You play as a baby called Isaac who fires his tears as his attacks in one of the four cardinal directions. Every time you play the game, it will be different. From the room designs and their layouts, to the enemy placements and the bosses, to the floors themselves, it's randomly generated so you'll have a fresh experience every time. Which is just as well, because every time you die, you get back to the beginning again. The thing that really shakes this up though, is the items that you collect to augment Isaac's abilities. These range from simple buffs to increase the fire rate of your tears, or their power or size, increase your speed, uh, gain extra health, make more money, and then there's more extravagant things such as spawning a poo every time you're hit, spawn flies when you kill things, grow wings and fly, become immune to spikes on the floor, cough up blood, turn into a cat. I mean, literally anything. Those really are the most basic examples. Uh, I mean, you could also pick up familiars that will orbit you or move independently to aid you. You can find collectibles such as tarot cards that can generate things or warp you about the level. There are the signs of the zodiac you can find that will obscurely mirror their respective sign in the form of an ability. There's about 600 items in the game now, and the absolutely mental thing is that pretty much all of them can interact with the others. Sometimes you know, yeah, but there will be two that won't really affect how the other works, but others will synergize to the point of breaking the game. <laughs> Just as an example, the uh, Tammy's head item, which when you use it would fire tears in 10 directions around you. So just a nice big burst attack. And then if you pick up the technology item, which turns your tears into laser beams, when you use Tammy's head, you would now fire 10 laser beams around you instead. So they sort of stack. And that can also stack with, say, the spoon bender item, which adds a homing effect to your tears. And then your laser beam bursts would also home in on the various enemies in the room and so on and so on. There's also a whole bunch of characters to unlock, all of which have different starting stats, different items. There are a bunch of different endings to find by following different routes through the game. There are additional challenge modes and daily runs. There's hard mode, greed mode, greedier mode. You've got so many options to choose from depending on how you want to play or what sort of run you want to have. Now, I'll state that I'm talking about the most recent version of Binding of Isaac here, which is Afterbirth Plus on the Switch, which is the game that appeared on Chris's list and also the first version of Binding of Isaac that appeared on Minty's list way back when. 
which we've said before, it contains so much content that it has turned the game into more of a bloater than the uh, the streamlined Rebirth version I played on the 3DS. And it appears that patches and bits of content are still being added. Like, I've done a few runs of, of this in the last week, and I was still finding new enemies and new items and collectibles too. It's absolutely mad. And it also means that it's it's almost impossible to remember what does what. I mean, certainly on a specific level. And, and this is something that I thought provided a bit of a high bar to entry in Rebirth. I was so intimidated by the sheer volume of things in the game, I would never get my head around it. But the more I played and the more I watched various runs on YouTube, the more I picked up. And chiefly, I learned most of the ins and outs of the game from Minty. And having his encyclopedic knowledge to hand to ask him what all the items did was just insanely useful. You know, before I made the potential error of picking up soy milk or Matt's kidney stone. Mm. And even though I've poured hundreds of hours into the game between its various forms, I still can't tell you what everything does. And I can't remember the specific stat boosts of certain items. But similar to the way that the design of the enemies and bosses become secondary to them just being indicators of their movement and attack patterns... I found that the items in the game just just tend to get stored into one of two columns in my brain, good items and bad items. And I'll know from seeing the item whether or not I want to pick it up or, or not, you know, even if I can't remember exactly what it does. And it's the same with like the smaller things you collect as well, such as keys and bombs and, and, and money. You see them as, as numbers rather than items. You know that you'll need to have a couple of keys on every floor to unlock the shop and the treasure room or you'll mentally keep track of, of marked rocks hidden among regular rocks that could contain soul hearts that you see, making sure you have enough bombs to destroy them, whilst also saving enough bombs to try and find the hidden rooms on each floor. And yeah, with your coins, you know that if you have 15 coins, you can buy one of the big items in the shop, so it might be worth using a key to do that. Or if you have five coins and you need a bomb, you could use a key to open the shop and buy a bomb. It's, it's, it's constantly... A mental workout as you keep track of, of how you're playing and that for me is what makes it endlessly entertaining and engaging to play despite the enormity of the items in the game there are a few personal favorites of mine some that like if you come across them it gives you such a boost i mean not only just in terms of stats and abilities but just in terms of confidence like if you see the magic mushroom item in a room i mean it's a great item it boosts all your stats but it's just such a positive beacon that it makes you play <laughs> better going forward you know because every time you go into a treasure room you fought your way through on the pedestal in the middle it could be e coli or it could be a shitty nappy or it could be a one-up mushroom you know and and (laughs) the joy that it gives you seeing an item that you really really want is just absolutely sensational i had a run the other day where i picked up three of my favorite items within the first four floors i think and on the first floor i picked up death's touch which increases your damage, allows your tears to go through enemies, and it turns them into cool little scythes. Then on the second floor, I picked up 2020, which sees you fire double tears next to each other, effectively doubling your damage and your attack radius. And then on, I think on the fourth floor, I found the Super Meat Boy Circular Saw, which, similar to the 1-Up Mushroom, boosts all of your stats. There's also the Jacob's Ladder item, which was a real favourite of mine back in the Rebirth days on the 3DS, which uh, it electrifies your tears, sending laser beams scattering around the room wherever your tears land. And it just causes loads of splash damage to all the enemies. It's like a really good, quick room clearer. I absolutely love it. So there's collections of items as well on certain themes. And if you collect enough of an item of a certain theme, you'll get a specific transformation. One of these is being able to transform into Guppy, Isaac's dead cat after you collect three of the guppy items uh, and then you can fly about and, and spawn blue flies which automatically go and attack enemies for you brimstone what a, oh, that was like my first favorite item and basically it turns your tears into a chargeable death ray and if you got that i always felt that's it I've, this run I've, I've got it don't worry i've got this one sorted like it allows you to keep distance from enemies whilst also just attacking with loads of damage it's great cricket's head the head of isaac's dead dog fairly simple big damage buff i love finding the small rock which is another damage boost and something else you could potentially find inside one of the marked rocks i mean there's so many there's so many and and sometimes you'll be on the lookout for a specific item because you know it's going to synergize well with another one that you've already got transforming an item that 
might usually leave you nonplussed into one item that brings you inordinate joy. I've also got a few personal favourite characters to do runs as. Mainly uh, is a character you unlock called The Lost, which I find to be like the purest way of playing the Binding of Isaac because the Lost has no health. So if you get hit, you die. But you start with an item that allows you to take one hit per room. So as long as you're careful, you're fine. And you can fly, so you can hover over rocks and stuff to steer well clear of enemies. And because the Lost has no health, it means that items you get from uh, devil rooms, which usually cost hearts to buy, you get these for free. And these are the items that are really powerful and stacked together really nicely. So all you need to do is get through a few floors, get a few devil deals, and you're hot to trot. <laughs> and, I mean, the, the, the day I defeated the Delirium boss with the Lost on hard mode is one of my prouder achievements. Because that whole floor and boss is such a lazy clusterfuck of a design that usually you can't avoid taking a few hits in the boss fight. But... I managed it, and that was great. That's incredibly impressive. <laughs> Thank you. Wowee. <laughs> also like doing runs as Isaac after you unlock the D6 starting item, which allows you to re-roll the items in the treasure rooms if you don't like what the game spat out for you, which it just, you know, felt like it gave you a bit more of a sense of control over the game. Uh, Judas is just a great character to run as. He only has one heart container to start with, but he's nice and fast, and he's got good starting damage. Also starts with the Book of Belial item, which increases your damage even more when you use it. So it's very useful for giving you a, 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 a temporary damage boost uh, for boss fights. I remember when I started playing the game and I said to Minty, what's uh, what's the difference between the characters? And you said, well, you know, you have Isaac starts with these sort of, mid, sort of average stats. Magdalene starts with, uh, she's got four hearts and also uh, her starting item is a yum heart. So you can use that to regenerate a heart. I was like, right, so she's got the most health. And you're like, yes. And I said, right, so she's the best then. No. I was like, I don't understand. <laughs> no, I think Judas is the best. But he starts with one heart. Yes. Oh, I won't get it. I do get it now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> since playing The Binding of Isaac and since writing these lists, I, I've been pretty spoiled when it comes to roguelikes, chiefly in the form of Dead Cells and Hades, which... To be honest, both provide much slicker roguelike experiences. None of the bloat that we see in Afterbirth Plus. They've definitely learnt things from The Binding of Isaac and other early roguelikes to create tighter, more consistently enjoyable gaming experiences. Because whilst, yes, you can get the items you want in the early floors of Isaac, you can get totally shafted by Egmont Millen's puerile sense of humour and get stuck with items that make you weaker or pick up things you don't know what they do or how to use them and it can make the game a real slog until you either die or find something to power you up again but the thing that the game does do is make it so that you're never too far away from turning your fortune around the next treasure room could have a run defining item in it if you can beat the next boss you, you could get a great item or you could open up a devil room or an angel room to get another transformative item so if you open a treasure room to find a piece of shitty toilet paper, you can always find a reason to press on and just try the next room, no matter how many floors in a row you're being hard done by. And when the worst comes to the worst and you die, with just a press of a button, you can start again and maybe your luck will change in the first floor of a new run. And it means that the game has instant replayability because it almost instantly satiates your curiosity constantly through the game. And this makes for an incredibly addictive experience. I mean, th there are so many elements of the game that I still haven't really got my head around. Now, I've completed normal, hard, greed and greedier mode with all of the endings for all of the characters, except one, which is the Keeper, uh, a character that uses money as health. And it's a weird mechanic that sees you not be able to increase your overall health beyond two, I think. And I just, I just couldn't get my head around how to play as him, apart from in greed mode, where coins are more forthcoming and I managed to complete a run as him on that. Speaking of greed mode, this was another mode that I remember seeing Minty play before I played just the normal game at all. And it looked so phenomenally overwhelming that I was totally put off. But the mode is actually brilliant and it basically turns the game into more of an arcade experience. It sort of streamlines and 
concentrates the game, compresses a full run's worth of play into a few minutes. And once I figured out how it worked, it was yeah insanely fun. And again, it satisfied that curiosity so quickly and so frequently that you could just find yourself playing it for run after run after run. I remember when I unlocked the Apollyon character after defeating Mega Satan for the first time, and he starts with a really, really cool item called Void. And this took me a while to get my head around, as it basically consumes an item in the room it's used in. And if it's an active item, like, say, an item that fires a barrage of tears, or it warps you to a random room, it will add that ability to its own. So when you use it in the future to consume another item, it will activate all of its banked active abilities at once. And if you use Void to consume a passive item, like an item that will increase your health or up your damage, it will instead give you two random stat buffs, which is great for when you find items that you don't really want or you don't have a use for. And it means that you can put together these insane builds with this insanely overpowered and complex item. It's absolutely brilliant. And it's, yeah, it's quite mind-bending. I think the key to my enjoyment of this game also comes down to a couple of other factors, and, and that's the hardware I played it on. I didn't see the appeal of, of playing it on a computer, certainly not using a keyboard to control it, which I know is how Minty predominantly played it. As you know, I'm, I'm a staunch believer in the fact that first-person games should be played with a mouse and keyboard, but I'm also of the belief that anything else <laughs> should be played with a controller. <laughs> the fact that it got a port to the 3DS and used the second screen to keep track of your stats was a huge draw for me. And the fact that I could pick it up and play it for five minutes here and there, I could do a run or two in bed, sneak in a few minutes of play under my desk at work. It was great. And I was I was gutted when I got my head around Rebirth that I knew that that console, even the new 3DS, would never be able to handle the additional content in Afterbirth that I saw Minty playing on the PC. But then Afterbirth Plus arrived on the Switch and I imported it from the US a couple of weeks after getting the Switch itself because... I knew that I was about to make a purchase that was going to give me the equivalent of about 7p an hour. <laughs> uh, admittedly, not quite as good value as Rebirth on the 3DS, but I still remember being stationed in North Wales whilst I was co-creating a musical with a theatre up there and playing on my Switch every night in my friend's house before bed, every morning before getting up, occasionally sneaking in a few runs during downtime in rehearsals. It's the perfect pick-up-and-play game. I, I, I love this game for all of its flaws all of its great great strengths it's, it's a genuine joy to get your head around to learn all of the different patterns in the game to learn all of the different secrets you know the different rules for where hidden rooms tend to be what the different colors of enemies mean what you need to do to unlock the boss rush after the mum fight how you unlock your way to defeat the hush boss how you find your way to satan or the blue baby or mega satan how the heck greed mode works and how you can use it to your advantage what on earth is Isaac crying for? Like, <laughs> having dived back into it for quite a few runs this week, I can say that the appeal and addictiveness of this game is still as potent as it ever was. And I know that when the final Repentance expansion lands, I'm going to have no problem probably plowing another three or 400 hours into the game to play through all of the new content. All of the content from Antibirth that I've still never played, which was the, the, the fan mod, which is now being sort of taken on and legitimised. I absolutely can't wait. It's literally announced this week that the release date for the expansion is 31st of March this year. And I'm assuming that's for PC, so I don't know when it's going to find its way to consoles. But in anticipation, I've started playing through my digital PAL copy of The Binding of Isaac Afterbirth Plus so that I can get the DLC from the European eShop and it will be compatible because, well, I bought <laughs> I bought Binding of Isaac on the eShop even though I had the cartridge from America, but the save didn't transfer across because it reads it as two different editions so i'm assuming it'll be the same with buying the dlc and it's a shame to put aside obviously all of my progress from my american copy save but i've also really enjoyed just doing a whole bunch of runs afresh discovering the characters again even though i've done it thousands of times i still i still get that same satisfaction out of getting a good build ticking the various things off the list in the game it's it's wonderful it it is like family to me it's my 10th favourite video game of all time, as my wife likes to call it. It's the crying baby game. Ah, we love that crying baby game. <laughs> it's a good one. I'm so excited for Repentance. Maybe you both know more about this than I do. Because this next expansion adds a lot of extra stuff again, and it also has this, this element of the, the anti-birth fan mod being folded into it, does that mean 
the next edition will have more? Will it have less? Will it take out what was in it before? Like, I can't get my head around how the different expansions work anymore. So this expansion basically gives you, for every floor in the game, like the basement, yeah. the uh, the one after it, the one after that, etc. There's another version of it. So you've got, along with the depths and the necropolis, I think you then got the mausoleum. Okay. Which has a really, really cool sort of like cathedral at nighttime aesthetic. That's really nice. The caves has the mines as well, which has a lava aesthetic and minecarts minecarts uh, there's one that's uh it's called downpour oh yeah they're really really good um they've got all kinds of new enemies that are uh, sympathetic of their place in the game what flaws they're on they've got new bosses that are really really good as well yeah a whole bunch of new items and new bosses it's gonna be great i honestly think that anti-birth is probably a better expansion than afterbirth plus mm. so i'm um, yeah i can't wait can't wait for it so there we go. That is my 10th favourite video game of all time. It's The Binding of Isaac Afterbirth Plus. If you've enjoyed this episode or if indeed you've enjoyed any of our other episodes, please do share the podcast on social media. Engage with us on our social media platforms, facebook.com slash our3cents, Instagram, Twitch and TikTok at O3C Podcast. Search for our3cents on YouTube or you can reach out to us individually If you want to ask us any specific questions about these games, take us to task on our opinions, ask us things you might like us to answer on a future episode, tell us your top 10 favourite video games of all time. We want to hear them. I am on Twitter, at Jonathan Dunn. I am at Chaz underscore Hodges. And I am Clement underscore Boo. And if you're really enjoying what we're doing, also do check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash our3cents. Check out all of the amazing perks that you can get there if you want to get some more out of the podcast or if you just want to show us a bit of love we would very much appreciate that and please join us next week for our second bonus episode of season three celebrating the majesty of physical video games in this modern era when digital is taking over we are taking a step back to celebrate the physical releases of games from the past and we also have as a special guest JP from JP Switch Mania and also co-founder of Premium Edition Games which is an independent publisher who are gearing up to release their first two physical releases for the Switch. It is an absolute banger. You don't want to miss it. Love that guy. And now a word from our sponsor. And now a word from our sponsor. The award-winning Go Nintendo podcast is the best place to get the latest news on the world of Nintendo. We cover the biggest stories, share impressions of the latest games, and answer your burning questions. There's also some general pop culture talk, game music trivia, a heaping helping of silliness, and did I mention our sassy robot companion? I'm the star of the show. Catch new episodes of the Go Nintendo podcast every Saturday on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Hey Chris, what's the War Rocket Ajax podcast about? Well Matt, if we were smart, it'd be about murders. But it's actually about comics. War Rocket Ajax. It's not about murders. But it is weekly on the Greenlit Podcast Network.